of the Survival Podcast. As always, we'll make the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, second day back after my trip. And uh, today we're actually going to focus on a lot of what I discussed with Val Riazanov during my trip with him at the Black Belt Magazine and during the filming of Advanced Ballistic Strikes and uh, Ukrainian Combat System. Um, I'll tell you what. Val's an interesting guy, and I'll give you a lot of his insights, and I'll give you, of course, my commentary and my views on them uh, as we go through today's show. We're going to talk about violence today. We're going to talk about dealing with violence, and we're going to talk about trying to avoid violence. And I'm going to try to make some of this stuff real for you. I think that, especially in the survivalist community, there's a lot of, uh, how do I put this, myth in the mind of a lot of people out there about what you would do in a confrontation. I think understanding what a real attack is like and understanding the the fact that you generally don't see attacks happen the way that we see them in movies and television and that there's a there's a psychology involved that's left out because it doesn't sell well it doesn't make for really uh cool heroes that always win and it it just doesn't I'll tell you what I'll put it to you this way violence on the movies is sensational Violence in reality is cruel, merciless, and it doesn't really look that much like violence in some situations from a distance. And I don't think, again, that's why it sells well. So we're going to go into that. We're going to do what you can do to avoid violence and what you can do to confront violence when you absolutely have to. Uh, we won't get into a lot of technique or anything like that. Hard to do with audio anyway. But I want to talk to you about the psychology of someone who's lived a life based on dealing with these situations now uh, for, I guess, uh, 20 to 30 years. All right, so moving on from there, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping before we get into the main topic of today's show. Uh, let's first of all take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one is Survival Seed Bank. What is the Survival Seed Bank? Is it a great big collection of seeds that you go grab today and plant tomorrow? Not really. It's designed for long-term storage. So these are seeds that are specially sealed, specially preserved, and put into a nice little seed vault type of uh, device. So you can take them and store them for up to 20 years so that they're in reserve. Uh, just as you keep food in reserve, this is a way to keep seed in reserve. So really recommend you check out the Survival Seed Bank and consider adding it to your storage of preps. Next up today is silverandgoldshop.com. For the old-timers, you might wonder, what happened to Tea Party Silver? Well, they haven't gone anywhere. They've simply turned into silverandgoldshop.com. Silverandgoldshop.com, of course, is run by Mary Beth Maidmont, wonderful lady, and all the feedback I get about her when people deal with her is she's just absolutely wonderful. I can tell you I feel the same way myself. That's why I buy silver and uh, will soon be buying gold myself from silverandgoldshop.com. Great website, great product, great service, and you know you got to have some silver and gold in your investing portfolio for the future. Not just for barter, but just for solid investing return. And I'll tell you what, some of the coins that are so beautiful, they are a great thing to hand down to kids. Uh, I've been giving to my nieces and nephews and stuff like that that have every toy under the sun. They've been getting silver for, for their birthdays and for Christmas and things like that. 
and you think that they might be like, oh, I got silver instead of a toy. No, I've had my uh, niece and nephew both bouncing up and down off the walls because they were really excited to get something different, and they're beginning to understand the value of real money. I suggest you consider doing that with your own kiddos. And, of course, those youngsters that are part of your extended family, it makes an impact on them young. All right, moving on from there, let's uh, let's give you a quick reminder that we do have a gear shop at the survivalpodcast.com. You can find that at the main website, or you can go to store.survivalpodcast.net. Uh, there you can get shirts, you can get hats, you can get challenge coins. I really recommend you pick up some challenge coins. We are just about out of the second run. They're really cool. And uh, I'd love to see you in the field someday and uh, be able to challenge you with my coin for a beer and, and lose the bet because you have yours. But they are a real cool symbol of affinity. Check out the challenge coins and check out our other stuff there. And we do have new things on the way very, very soon to the gear shop. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, such as 20 members-only videos that have been recorded by me personally. They are not available anywhere else but at the uh, the gear shop or at the uh, MSB. Uh, we also take all of the really uh, instructional videos from YouTube and we put them back there in iPod compliant MP4. So even though those videos are available on YouTube, you have a direct download capability with them to put them on your iPod or other portable device. Uh, and there's a lot of other things there. Discounts to about 20 different vendors. Uh, really a, a great way to get a return of investment on $50 a year or $5 a month, which comes out to what? 20 cents an episode to support the work we do here. We've got members that don't even use the benefits. So you say, hey, it's worth 20 cents an episode to help support the show. But right now, until the end of tax day, which is tomorrow, remember, I'm running a special. I'll give out the code again. I'm not emailing this. I'm not putting it on the forum. The only way you're going to get this code is by listening. The code is 0042. Again, 0042. Use that code for an annual membership. You'll get your first year for 35 bucks. And with that, we need to go ahead and get on with the main topic of today's show. But I have to do something today. I have to do something that I never like having to do because I never like being wrong. But when I'm wrong... I always try to come back to you with a correction. I don't know how much of a correction I'm making today because I don't trust people in government pretty much because they're in government. So just because I find out that something's already existed and only being changed doesn't mean it's completely benevolent. But I talked yesterday uh, about the, the uh, new private army that was buried in the health care bill. I got all these emails about it, and I figured it was, you know, propagandist crap because everybody sensationalizes everything. I went in, I read the entire section of the health care bill. Everything seemed to check out, and I thought, yeah, these guys have a new private army built into this. Well, here's the thing. It's not new. It's been around for a very, very long time, and all that's been done to it is the source of funding has been uh, increased and, and, and shifted, and the number of people who are full-time, the cap on that number has gone up. So it's kind of a budgetary change. So if nothing else, I can still be angry that they are uh, spending more of our money on something that I'm not sure we really need or doesn't need to be part of the health care bill in of itself. Um, but let me read you a little thing from factcheck.org. Uh, question, did the new health care law give Obama a Nazi-like private army of 6,000 people? Answer, no. Contrary to false Internet rumors, the new Ready Reserve Corps of doctors and other health workers will report to the Surgeon General and be like the Ready Reserves and other uniformed services. They will be used during health emergencies. And it goes on from there. And I don't want to hear a bunch back about how I'm wrong now and was right yesterday. 
All I'm going to tell you is I'm going to put a link to this thing. You can read the entire explanation yourself, and I'm going to give you another link that explains how long this thing's actually been around. So it looks like I was duped. It looks like I was wrong. And I'm not saying there's not anything dangerous here, but it's not as dangerous as possibly I led you to believe. So I do my best to vet things. Everything seemed to check out on this one. Um, and remember what I said yesterday, though, that I think is still very important. When anything comes down from a president or from a, a member of our government, uh, if you wouldn't be upset if the guy had a different letter after his name, you're not analyzing it correctly. So do I like this thing? I don't really know. I'm going to have to do more research into it. But I don't like anybody with additional authority out there because I think we have enough governmental agencies with enough authority. Can this thing be abused? Again, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm putting this new uh, version of the Ready Reserve Corps into the I don't know yet category at this point. But I did want to correct my definitive statements from yesterday that were wrong. All right, sorry about the mistake. Uh, and sorry about having to go kind of backfill into that, folks. But, man, I always try to correct my mistakes uh, when I have them. So those of you that think I'm, think I'm never wrong, hopefully today maybe I've, uh, I've humbled myself a little bit for you. All right, now let's get into discussing um, dealing with violent confrontations. And I want to start out with kind of what I was talking about during the intro segment, which is real violence versus movie violence. Let's talk about just something that's really not what I had in mind, but I think it'll help make the, the, the image clear to you. Let's talk about the typical beat em up, you know, bust em up movie with bar fights or ring fights or, or just street brawls or anything in it where two guys or maybe one guy squaring off against three guys and the guy's a badass and he's out there fighting and you see these guys take 40, 50 shots before they're done, right? They get multiple shots to the face, the gut. The one guy gets beat to hell, he's knocked down, but yet he comes back and, and, and he defeats his opponent. And then I want you to take this and flip it over. And I'm also going to talk today about the difference between the real world and things like the UFC and boxing and all these other competitive sports. But compare that to something like the UFC. When you see a guy get to a point that's a good fighter in UFC where he can take two to three shots at his opponent's face in a row, you know, where he gets the guy down and gets an angle on him or something. The fight is over. It's always over at that point. But mostly what you see in UFC are two guys measuring each other, waiting for the other one to make a mistake. And since you have people that are of that caliber, especially at the heavier weights, as soon as one makes a mistake, the fight's done. It's the first guy to screw up, and then the fight's over. And there is some analogy back from that to the real world. So when you see all of these things in the movies, and you see like a guy hit and his face going sideways and blood coming out, and he comes right back and hits the other guy, remember how Rocky was? You know, the fight that Rocky, the movie Rocky was based on looked nothing like the movie. It was an incredible fight, uh, and some of you might want to look up who the original Rocky really was and what fight inspired that movie, uh, but it doesn't, it's never the way we see it on TV. And if that's in your head at all, you're not prepared to deal with violence. You might not even recognize violence when you see it. Before I move on, real quick, let's talk about the difference between dealing with something like cage fighting, MMA, right, mixed martial arts in the ring, or boxing, or uh, any combat combative sport where there's a ring and rules and referee and how that compares to the real world. Here's the reality, and some of you are going to get really pissed off at me right now. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare at all. It is nothing like the real world. There are people 
that if a person like me, with my limited knowledge and training of self-defense, climbed into the ring with them, with a referee, and we squared off, they would have me done in 15 seconds flat. And probably the only reason it would take 15 seconds flat is they might not know that I don't know what the hell I'm doing in a ring. If they knew, they could have me in five. But a person like me could walk up to a person like them, and if I just wanted them dead, kill them before they know that they're even in danger. And not that I would do it, and not that I'm advocating. Of course, I'm not advocating that kind of that kind of uh, uh, murderous uh, uh, attitude. But my point is that there are people out there that think that way, and that's what real violence and real combat in the streets is like. And a lot of the people that are out there selling product and self-defense, and they show all these you know, step one, step two, step three. There's no time for that, and it absolutely never looks like that. Well, one last thing before I move on to the morals of the criminal. The other thing I want you to think about, when you watch people study martial arts, and I don't care if it's karate, if it's kempo, if it's jiu-jitsu, anything like that, and the guy's a black belt in karate, black belt in taekwondo, and then you see that individual climb into a mixed martial arts ring, you see very little of the theatrical version of the art in his fighting style. All of a sudden it becomes two guys measuring each other, and the fights tend to look very, very similar. And all of these great forms and things go out the window. That is a look into realism. So think about these things as we go forward. So let's go into the next thing. And this is the thing that I think people really have to understand. The morals of the criminal. The morals of the person that would do you harm when you're walking down the street minding your own business. The morals of the person that would threaten you with a knife or a gun when you've done nothing to them. The morals, they don't have any. It's horrific. It's horrible to think about the person that would put a knife into your liver because he wants your wallet. But those people are out there. And they're out there in greater numbers than we're willing to accept. And if times get really tough, as we've seen throughout history, the number of those people increase. What happens, and this is a hard thing, I think, for people to understand, Most people have some level of morals, uh, even criminals at some point in their life. There's very few true psychopaths out there. A psychopath is a person with no guilt, no remorse. They have no moral compass whatsoever, and there's, there's a few of those. But most of our criminals are not psychopaths. They're people who have already had kind of a predisposition to a low end of morality. And each time they take a new step, toward a lower level of morality, and they actually go through with the action, their willingness to go further increases. And what I mean by that is that if we look at, let's say we take a typical criminal that ends up eventually uh, murdering a few people for his own enjoyment and entertainment, uh, we generally will find that if the police have been doing their job uh, and trying to put this guy away and keep him in jail and the legal system has been doing its terrible job of putting him back on the street, that you'll see an escalation in behavior, that the the person generally doesn't go from uh, a guy with a job that holds down a job and takes care of his family and then turn around one day and go out into the street and murder a couple strangers. Most people that take a leap to murder are people put in stressful situations and they generally murder somebody they know. The person that murders a stranger is doing it for personal gain. 
So they generally escalate. So if we looked at somebody, we would see that maybe they started out with petty theft and some drug abuse and some drug trafficking. Maybe they move on to assault and then maybe perhaps uh, assault with a weapon, maybe perhaps robbery, burglary, something like that. And eventually they get to a point where uh, they're willing to go and take the, the next step. And every time that person takes a step, taking it again gets very easy for them to do. And their morality declines uh, as their propensity for violence increases. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense. And what that means is that when you're in a potentially violent situation with somebody, and it's, it's, it's getting to a point where you know that violence may occur, you need to assume that that person is well down the path. You need to be prepared for anything that that person might possibly do to you or to anyone else around you, whether or not they appear to be very threatening, because you don't know the mind of the opponent. And again, I want to reiterate that real violence doesn't look like it does on TV. Seeing one guy get beaten to death and kicked to death laying on the ground, when you see the occasional real-world footage of a gang beating a person to death, doesn't look like television. If you've ever seen a clip like that, if you could bear to watch it, it, it looks almost fake. Because bodies don't fly once they're incapacitated. It's like kicking a sack of potatoes, but the damage is going inside and it's being done. The next thing that we need to talk about, as we're, if we're going to be real about this, is we need to understand something. And this is, again, a place I think that the people that live in fantasy land don't understand. When it comes to dealing with a professional, Someone that is out to kill you as a professional, 99 times out of 100, you're as good as dead. And you'll be dead before you even know there's a threat. In other words, if somebody, let's take it to the extremes. If, if somebody puts out a hit on you, and I'm the hit man, do you think I'm going to walk up and go, hey, buddy, let's fight? What will happen? Guy comes to your house, rings the doorbell, you open the door, he shoots you. Dressed like the mailman. That type of scenario. These movies that you see where the guy has a professional hitman on him and he gets away from him six or seven times are not very realistic. The other side of this is the professional that turns criminal. The person that's really trained with weapons, that's really trained uh, with, with uh, how to fight and how to incapacitate. This person is the most dangerous criminal there is. Because they will act at the time that they're not expected to act. They will not allow a situation to slowly escalate so that both sides are ready for the confrontation. So when you're dealing with a professional, the only hope that you have is that he doesn't actually want you dead. And a good way of explaining that would be law enforcement. If you are a criminal and law enforcement is attempting to apprehend you, they're going to take every opportunity they have to bring you in alive, to not kill you. At the point where you become a threat to their life or the life of others, they will use lethal force. Okay? And, and I think that there's people out there that have that concept stuck in their head. Criminals don't work that way. So if a criminal breaks into your house and he happens to be armed, he's not coming through the house with the mentality of a law enforcement officer. If I find these people, I want to put them down on their stomach. Even even with the, the secondary thing being different than law enforcement, so I can steal their stuff. He's thinking, the homeowner wants me dead. That's why I'm, I'm breaking in their house. He doesn't want me here. He may be armed. I don't know. 
If he's carrying a weapon, his intention is to kill you. Not to apprehend you. Not to take you hostage. To kill you. Because he doesn't have time to wait. Because in his world, in his mind, when the opponent has a gun, he means to use it. So he's in that combative situation and fully escalated, fully stressed, and fully on edge. Tell you a story about my father. My father ran a gas station down in Jacksonville, Florida, before we moved back to Pennsylvania. Uh, this would have been in my grade school years. He was held up twice by an armed person. Both times he complied and gave the guy what he wanted, which of course was money, and escaped with his life. He said in one instance he wasn't afraid at all. The guy was very calm and very relaxed and simply said, hey man, just give me the money. He said he, he gave the guy the money, he complied, and he immediately took cover. And the guy ran away. The second time, he said he was terrified and in fear of his life. Because the person robbing him did not know what he was doing. He wasn't a professional robber. He was just a thug that decided to rob. And the guy had the gun in his face, literally shaking with it. And what he said he was thinking is, this guy doesn't want to kill me. He really doesn't. He just wants money. I'll give him the money, but this guy might kill me, even if he doesn't intend to, because he has no idea what the hell he's doing. And he said that was the most fear he's ever been in in his life. He still complied and did the same routine, which probably saved his life, because this guy may have just panicked and shot. And this is the thing I want you to understand. There is a point for compliance in violent situations, especially with weapons or when you're truly outnumbered. But compliance is used as a point of survival to look for a route for escape. So, for instance, as soon as this, my dad gave this guy this, this, this wad of bills in his pocket, he was gone, disappeared, and out of the room. And he was armed. And at that point, he drew down his weapon. But he knew there was no time to draw a weapon against the guy that already had the bead on him, so to speak. My dad, like me, not a martial artist. This guy would have done this to Valerie Azanoff. He probably would have had the gun over his head if not been shot. But we have to understand something. Even if we learn techniques with disarming weapons, unless you're a professional yourself, unless you've done it over and over and over and over in practice, the odds are really against you. We'll talk more about weapons in a bit. But I just want to bring some realism to this. And I want you to understand with the guy with the knife or the gun or just the guy that's a lot bigger than you, that's got 50 pounds of muscle on you, or the four guys that you could take individually are thinking when they come after you. And it is to take whatever they want from you, up to and including your life. And it's dirty, it's messy, and it's horrific. And there is no Hollywood on the streets. Not even on the streets of Hollywood Boulevard. So, if we're going to talk about dealing with confrontations, I think we should have certain priorities and certain rules. And the first rule for me is avoiding the confrontation in the first place. And what that means is that, and I've talked about this in the past, situational awareness has got to be high at all times. You can enjoy yourself, you can be walking around, you can be having fun with your family, you don't have to remain in a state of constant stress, and that would be wrong, and that's not situational awareness. Because if you're totally stressed and focused, you're not situationally aware because you get tunnel vision. So what I mean is that it's simply a matter of observing the situation. And if certain things in a situation start to hit you in the gut and tell you there's something wrong, 
You trust that voice. And if something says, hey, we shouldn't go here, especially guys, don't think, I'll go anywhere I want. That's the attitude we get, you know. I'll talk about this a bit more, but it's kind of like if you're in you're in an argument with somebody and he shoves you, the first thing you tend to do is shove them back, escalate. All right. When you are in a situation where you feel like you've been shoved internally, that internal gut has told you stop, and you don't listen, it's just like shoving the guy back. You're putting yourself in greater risk, and never, especially you guys that are married or have girlfriends or with other people, it's one thing to, 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 to ignore that sensation when you're alone, highly dangerous, but it is your life. When you ignore that sensation and you take other people with you who are counting you, especially when you're the strong one, you're the leader of that group, they're depending on you, and you might take them into a situation where you can't protect them. Trust that instinct. Avoid the confrontation. When the confrontation occurs, when there is some level of confrontation, you kind of move on to the next priority, and that's de-escalation of the confrontation. When I was a young hothead, and I really was a hothead as a, as a young man, especially in my military days and, and couple, you know, a couple days right outside of the military, uh, and before the military in high school, really, really bad. If you would have shoved me, there's a 50-50 chance, depending on what I thought I was dealing with, where I would have either, you know, shoved you back or just hit you. It would have been an immediate response. And it wasn't because I was really a tough guy or a badass or trained. It's because I grew up uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, kind of, like I said, when I went to grade school, it was kind of a really tough environment. We had a lot of the kind of inner city thing going on. And then when I moved back to Pennsylvania, it was tough in a different way because you got country kids growing up in the mountains. Everybody wants to be tough. You know, you play football. All the things that are just common to rural America and make us kind of unique uh, people and let's be let's be fair to us, you know. Americans are kind of some tough guys in in our way, and that was always just the the way that I would have responded. And again, it's not because I was trained, it's not because I was a good guy, not because I was a bad guy. It's just because it was a natural response to have to be in a situation where, hey, if there's if there's an attack at a certain level, then there's a response either at or above that level. And what I've learned from Val, and this is a guy that could take out probably 99% of the people that he would ever come up against uh, in that type of confrontation in a split second. So complete confidence in his own ability, but yet the first response is de-escalation. And sometimes de-escalation even involves a little bit of violence. So what I mean by that is if you're in that confrontational situation, one of the first rules is to never go into any kind of a fighting stance. Now, you're actually in a fighting stance. You're in a defensive stance, but it's not shown. And this gets more into the Sistema and the Russian martial arts. But if you watch the videos of these guys and you see them and they have their hands at their side and they look completely undefended, but they're absolutely at a a place, a total relaxation. And what it really does is, number one, it de-escalates the situation. But number two, if the situation can't be de-escalated, you've got a person with a real problem, and either he's just coming straight at you and he's not going to stop anyway, there's no chance for it, or the attempt at de-escalation does not work, they're in a position where, and the only way I can explain this is the guys that we had kind of grappling with Val and working with Val and, and fighting with Val as we were producing these videos said, he doesn't give you anything to work off of. 
There's no rhythm to get into. If you watch two fighters, two boxers get in a ring, they kind of bounce off each other. If you watch two guys grappling, they're each waiting for the other to make a mistake. But there's a constant tension between the two. Where we had Val lay on the ground, two guys that were over 250 each, take a position on top of him and try to hold him down. And next thing you know, he's got one by the neck and one uh, one by the neck with his arm and one by the neck with his legs. And these two huge guys are wondering, well, how the hell did this happen? And what they said is there was no way to control him because there was no resistance. And as soon as you thought for a second, I've got this guy, next thing you know, something came out. It's the same thing when you're standing up talking to somebody. If you give a person resistance in a confrontation, then they have something to work off of. Hey, what are you? what's your problem? Hey, what's your problem? That type of thing. Or the shove and shove back. There's a rhythm now. And there's a natural escalation that goes on from there. Where if the shove comes, and immediately to the shove, you're actually trained to absorb the shove. And, and this is something you probably have to buy the DVDs when they come out to truly understand. But actually move with the body and, and take the shove and redirect it and let this person move away from you. And say, hey, man. It's okay. Didn't you? Know, you're okay. Excuse me. You know whatever, and de-escalate that. A lot of times, these situations never turn into fights. That should be your goal. And the macho man in you that says, "Hey, if you push me, I'm gonna," you got to stay away from that because I'm gonna go into the next part of real world violence. Let's say you and I uh, cross cross uh, problems in a, in a bar room or a shopping mall or just on the street for whatever reason whatsoever, and you look at me and you say, "I got this guy, no problem," and you do, okay? I'm not sufficiently armed to defeat you, and we get into a fight. How do you know that there's not three or four of my buddies standing behind you? One of them, that guy with no morals with a knife, that while you're busy tangling with me, even though you can defeat me easily, simply walks up to you and takes out your liver. Because that's the real stuff, folks. That's how these things really happen. There's a reason they call them gangs instead of individuals. And it doesn't matter if it's a big-time street gang or biker gang or just a couple disturbed youths in the middle of the inner city. There's that gang pack mentality of taking care of each other. And there's a coordination, even when it's not planned, that if I'm engaging you, that my other folks have my back. And as we were talking with this huge barrel-chested MMA fighter, this guy hit Neil. If you saw the videos with Neil getting hit by other guys, Neil's been hit by some really big guys and has learned to absorb the blows. He said, other than Val, this guy hits harder than anybody else that's ever hit me before. This guy can look after himself. He's just started his MMA career, 7-0. and up. And you know what he said? You know what he told me when we started doing the real-world scenarios, and I had a guy that was about 180 pounds standing behind him, and he was tangling with Val, and the guy just walked up and touched him on the back, and I said, that was a knife. He said, in the real world, that never even occurred to me. Because he's so confident in his own ability. These are things that we need to think about now. So that if we ever end up in those situations, we're more worried about what's behind us than what's in front of us. Because that's where the real dangers come from. The next thing is when de-escalation fails, uh, sometimes a controlled retreat is the best option. So if I'm in a, in a situation where a guy takes a swing at me, I know how to move, and I may move away from that, that strike redirect the individual, actually apply some level of a strike myself, but I'm out. I'm gone. I'm not staying there to fight. Why not? Because I'm a coward? No, because I'm smart. Because, again, even if I can handle the confrontation, 
with the individual. How do I know that individual is the only confrontation? I also have a desire not to be incarcerated. Okay, not even for a day. I've been incarcerated once in my life. I spent a day and a half in jail over something stupid, an unpaid ticket with a warrant that I wasn't aware of. And I didn't like it. Okay, I was never in any danger. I wasn't in lockup with a bunch of thugs or anything, sitting around with a bunch of people waiting to get get out. That's all it was. But I didn't like it at all. It was a very uncomfortable feeling. I didn't want to stay there any longer. Have you noticed that in this country, specifically this country, when there's a fight, the guy that wins... Unless the other person happened to have been armed with a weapon, the guy that wins almost always goes to jail. So even if you handle that confrontation and you take this guy down and you do what looks like excessive damage to him, when the police show up, and they will, you're probably going to jail. But even if you don't get out of the location and the the entire people around you say, I, I don't know, this guy moved out of the way and tapped him on the back and he fell down and then he just left you're probably clean. So retreat is one, avoiding confrontation with the law. Two, avoiding a situation where you've underestimated your opponent. Three, avoiding a situation where your opponent is not your real threat. There are other unknown threats in the area. And these are all things that have to be considered. There's also the potential for your fellow citizen to mistake your action and think you're beating this guy up for no reason at all, and next thing you know, you've got a chair over your back from somebody who meant well that didn't see the initial side of the confrontation. You don't want to be in locked-up confrontations in public, period, even if you are a superior fighter. There is always the potential for things to happen like this. When I was on my way back from the shooting with Tyler, some of you may have seen him in the MSB videos, this guy's 275 pounds, former lineman for collegiate football, Muay Thai fighter. Big guy, real confident, got into an, a, a, a situation with a guy uh, driving somewhere sometime where the guy got out of the car and came over, and he said when the guy stopped the car to get out, he was thinking, whatever. And, of course, the guy that gets out of the car happens to be a guy that's actually bigger than him. Huge, huge guy. And yelling at him to open the door, and he can't drive away because he doesn't want to run the guy over. But he also said, I'm not opening the door because I know this guy's going to sucker punch me as soon as I open up the door. He's got the tactical advantage. Next thing he knows, the guy collapses to the ground. One of his friends, who was half of both of their sizes, because this guy was so focused and so tunnel vision on Tyler, walked up and ear punched him. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do. I'm giving you a real world, actual example of what happens when you become focused on the individual. The way Val put it to me is that when we get in confrontations with people, we focus on their face. We hate their face. That's where we always look. And we're going to kill their face. And we get that tunnel vision, and it blocks out. All the rest of the world's real threats. So we need to think about that. The next thing is, and this is, again, with the system of martial arts, something that people that watch the videos really don't understand, is we need to at all times appear relaxed and harmless. There is a hard wiring in the human mind, in the human psyche, that if you come into a situation with me and we're in a confrontational endeavor, the minute that my shoulders raise... It's primal. It goes back to primates. If you look at an ape or a monkey when it's angry, what does it do? It bows up its chest and it thrusts its, its shoulders up and it puts its arms out or its arms in front of it to look bigger, to look more intimidating. Right? When you do that to somebody, their natural response is to do it back. Now we're back into escalation again. But the other thing you've done is you've, you've tipped your hand. It's like you're playing poker and you've got pocket kings, right? 
So you've got two kings, is, is what they would call, with uh, seven-card stud. And they start doing the turn cards, and the first two cards are kings, and you're sitting on four kings. And, and, and your opponents are, are sitting there going, I, mean, I don't know, somebody else has one of the kings or, or what have you. And right as the betting is getting intense and people have decided that you don't, you know, you don't have the kings and, and you're just bluffing and you say, boy, I like those kings. Don't be surprised if the guy, you know, drops out of the betting. And you've lost the opportunity because you've, you've tipped your hand. Or if you're foolish enough that, you know, when you got, you see the guys lifting their cards up so that they can be seen, when you lift your cards all the way up off the table and turn them over so they can be seen and put them back down. And whether you have two kings or you have a two and an eight, you've tipped your hand to your opponent. Well, when you get into a confrontational situation and you start to escalate with them, you've tipped your hand. I know how, you're saying to the person, I know how to defend myself. I'm willing to hit you. I'm prepared for you to try to hit me. When you're in a relaxed state, what you're saying is, I'm absolutely no threat to you whatsoever. And if the person wants to continue the confrontation, eventually they have to make two possible choices. And there's only two choices that can be made. Walk away from the confrontation and decide it's not worth it because I'm not sure what I'm dealing with. I don't like the, the way this guy's acting. He seems too calm to me. And that does happen. I've actually had it happen to myself with a... Driving issue, right? Guy was angry because I didn't turn fast enough at a green arrow. Chased me down in a parking lot at a shopping mall. And he stood there. He had no idea that I was armed with a gun. And that I actually had my hand a quarter inch from my gun the entire time that he was there. And he was screaming and yelling about how tough he was. And I just stood there. And I said, you know, I think it would be a good idea if you left right now. And he went on with all his tough talk, you know, and I, you know, I really, but in that complete relaxed state. And the guy ended up leaving, which was much more preferable to me than the other, the other thing occurring. Because the other thing that occurs is the confrontational adversary has to commit to an action. Whether it's a punch, whether it's a strike, whether it's a kick, whether it's a grab, whether it's a throw. And in their commitment, lies their weakness, especially when you've studied the body and you know things like anatomy points and where to strike and how to redirect energy. And because you're completely relaxed, what it leads to is one of two things. Again, the situation with this guy's too calm. i got to go, there's something wrong here. I don't know what it is. Maybe he's a cop. Maybe there's ten guys behind me. Maybe he just knows how to look after him. But there's something about calm energy that's disarming. Or... Overconfidence. And it's generally one of the two that the opponent picks up. And overconfidence is where I'm just going to cold cock this guy. Big haymaker right hand. Next thing you know, the guy's laying on the ground holding his spleen, and you're walking out the door. If you know how to look after yourself. Even if you don't know how to look after yourself, you do. Because all you need to do in that situation is avoid the confrontation and extricate yourself from it. And we know how to do that when we're two years old. And if you don't believe that, go play with a couple a couple toddlers and a little bit older, three, four-year-old kids and push them and play with them and watch the way their bodies move. And then go watch the way these guys that study Russian martial arts move. You'll see the exact same movements, the fluidity. But we learn to be rigid. And in a rigidness, we create weakness. However, even though you're being completely relaxed in these situations and you're looking harmless, you have to be able to, to use sufficient force including deadly force if necessary. And when you strike, it, the, the force must be sufficient for the situation. Otherwise, you risk simply angering your opponent. 
and it takes judgment. I talked about using strikes to calm people down. There's a very heavy strike that the Russians teach, which involves dropping the arm down, and that can be dropped into the chin, the neck, the chest. The chest is generally where it's least effective because we have a lot of uh, muscle tissue on our chest. But done properly, it can drive energy deep into the lungs, something you have to be very careful with if you're practicing with an actual person because it's going to do a lot of damage. But one of the things that they teach is to drop that very heavy strike with a slap to the top of the chest. And what it generally does is you've got a guy in a situation where he's very angry. You look at his face. When you see angry people, what do you see in their face? Red. Bright red color, right? Why? Blood pressure way, way up. And that slap to the chest drops the blood pressure in almost an instant. You see the color come right out of their face. We did experiments where we had guys force themselves up, take the shot, you watch the color come out. Now, this is a risk because it's not a lethal shot. It's not even an incapacitating shot. But it does make the individual think. You have to understand the situation you're dealing with. It could just as easily be a shot underneath and into into the vital organs, causing pain, maybe a, a takedown, but immediately extricating yourself from the situation. I can't emphasize this enough. And this is, I think, where I have to go back to reality versus uh, perceived reality. I think that there's a great deal of people out there that are convinced that there's nothing more realistic today than cage fighting, mixed martial arts, and extreme, you know, UFC and all that stuff. You've got two guys in there, very little rules. They can hit each other wherever they want. They're not wearing boxing gloves. They can grapple. They can kick. They can punch. And we look at that and go, man, that's about as real as it gets. It's absolutely not real. First of all, that cage means that there's absolutely nobody in there except the two fighters and a referee. And the referee is ensuring uh, an environment that's relatively safe. You very seldom see a person die in the ring. If they did that often, we would probably make the sport illegal. In fact, you very rarely see a person in the ring injured to a point where they can no longer compete. Yeah, I would bet there's more football players that lose their careers to injury than, than, than trained fighters. Okay? What Val said is the ring is a relatively safe environment if you are in you know, the right classification. So you put a 130-pound guy against a heavyweight, and a 130-pound guy started learning yesterday, and the heavyweight started learning you know, when he was two years old and he's 24 now. Um, that could be a very dangerous situation. That's why we have classifications of weight, something else we don't have in reality. We also have two fighters that are trained and prepared to deal with each other under a specific set of circumstances. When we move that outside of the ring, and we move it into a point where it's just a guy that wants your money, or it's just a guy that wants to hurt your wife or your girlfriend, and ladies, it's just a, it's a guy that just wants to take something from you. All of that goes away. None of that matters anymore. And we've, we've all heard stories about some of the best operatives in the world that leave and know something, and they put out a hitman on him, and some random thug off the street takes out this guy that was an elite fighter. Why? Because the situation is entirely different. Next thing I want to talk to you about is something that I was very happy to talk to Val about this time. And um, that is pressure points. And he said there are pressure points, and they can be used, and they can be used both to inflict pain, and they can be used for healing with acupressure and acupuncture, and it, they're good things to know. But in real speed combat, they're almost completely useless. Occasionally, there might be an opportunity to utilize pressure points, specifically in law enforcement, once you already have the situation partially under control. But when it comes to full speed combat, it's much more important to understand anatomy points than pressure points, and understand things like where the body is tense is where to strike. Where the body is relaxed is where not to strike. And he used that knowledge, and he used the knowledge of the underlying anatomy, 
which organs are underneath that to your advantage. Something I'm not going to go deeply into today because I really am talking more about the psychology of how to think about this. I'll do a more technical show maybe next week, uh, a rehash of Systema Striking, give you a little bit more background on how these techniques are actually applied. But just get that kind of into your mind right now, that there are certain points on the anatomy that can be easily manipulated and injured. One of the things that I learned is how vulnerable biceps are. Absolutely had no idea how vulnerable a bicep is. Even to a standard punch, let alone a, a, what they call a systema strike or a Russian-style striking. You got a guy with the arms up in a typical boxing uh, mentality, and you strike just above the tendon point, right where the bigger part of the bicep is to the inside, from the inside to the outside against the bone. If you doubt this, right now, put your left arm up, take your right arm, and gently punch yourself in the bicep. Keep doing that until you feel pain. And I don't mean the same strength. I'm saying don't hit yourself hard. Start out very light tap and just keep bringing it up. See how little you actually have to do to cause pain to your biceps. And especially put yourself in a typical fighting stance where that, that bicep is tense and hit it. And you'll feel pain in the bone and it'll radiate out. And it makes it hard to use that arm. You'll feel If you hit yourself hard enough, you'll feel tingling and numbness in your fingers. So imagine now the opponent striking a full force right cross or left cross or left jab, and you hit hard to the bicep so that it's the combined energy of the two colliding. Feel the pain and then add, you know, add the two together and think what that would be like. It's a very, very weak point on the body. We spend all, He talked about how bodybuilders spend all this time building up their arms, building up those biceps so they look big and tough, but that bicep is one of the weakest points on the body. Very, very easy to injure. And... From the standpoint of not ending up in jail, a very thing, a very easy thing to injure, to cause pain, to incapacitate with, but not to cause long-term lasting injury with. And it's amazed me that a guy that's worked with KGB and the Specna uh, has put so much thought into how to incapacitate people without actually causing severe injury, while knowing exactly how to cause severe injury or even death, and having that kind of portfolio available. You really think of these guys as killers, and what you find is they're very concerned. Uh, with being proficient at their tasks, uh, especially, I guess, as he's moved on to private security. But these, is, these are some interesting things that I've learned. Things like up under the rib cage, so coming from underneath and striking above the rib cage, the insides of the legs, and some places that are very, very dangerous to strike because you have a real chance of permanent injury or even death, such as the spine, the back of the neck, the temple. These are places you don't want to strike unless your life's on the line and it's the only option that you have. Uh, I want to talk about the Systema Strike briefly, because you've heard me mention it throughout today's show, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood things in the world. I think people watch these, and even the videos that we've put out with Franklin Spirico Media, and they see these little short strikes, and they see the, the, the opponent take these strikes, and it seems like there's a lot of pain from them. And people wonder how it's possible for something that looks so short to, to, to have so much pain behind it. If you if you want to try an experiment that will make this really easy to understand, I might do this today with a little bit of video for you. I have a heavy bag uh, out in my garage. Go hit a heavy bag as hard as you can with a conventional boxing punch, a good strong body blow underneath where you make that bag move. And you realize how much power you put into there. But then I want you to ask yourself a question. If you were to pick up a sledgehammer, especially like a small sledgehammer, like a two-pound sledge, you know, a small one that you use one-handed, hit that bag with a sledgehammer. Hit it hard. Don't hit it too hard because you might rupture the bag with it. But hit, give it a good solid hit, a hit that you know you would you would much rather take the punch than the hit from the sledgehammer. Watch what happens to the bag. The bag will have almost no movement at all. And it will have a very distinctive sound. Instead of 
a, a slap sound, a smack, which is what uh, boxing blows usually sound like. It'll be more of a thud, a deep inside thump. And that's what these strikes are doing. Instead of delivering the blow to the external muscle, they're delivering the blow deeper into the body. So if you imagine, if we took uh, a five-year-old boy and you stood up and tightened your muscles on your stomach and he came up and punched you in the stomach, you could probably just stand there and look at the little kid and laugh, right? If we surgically removed your abdominal muscles so that all that was between your intestines and this little boy's punch was your skin and he punched you now, what do you think that would feel like? And it's really the same thing. Well, how does that occur? It occurs because the human arm, the average male human arm, weighs somewhere between 12 and 15 pounds. Females, you're looking between 8 to 11 pounds for the average female arm. That is a club. And as soon as we take it free of these rigid strikes and these rigid points where we limit ourselves at the joint and we make it more like a whip and we unhinge it so that the fist or the hand, depending on what type of strike, open or closed hand, semi-open, semi-closed, using the fingers, using the knuckles, using the ridge, doesn't matter. But the hand and the wrist are firm and tense. And from about two inches behind the wrist all the way back to the shoulder, there is only enough tension to move the arm and to move the arm at speed. And it's completely relaxed. And at the last point is the impact. There's a push and a release. And what happens is it's like I come over to your house, take out a saw, and cut your arm off. Just cut it off at the shoulder. Right, So I can grab it by the bicep. I take duct tape, and I duct tape your hand into a fist. I hold your arm by the bicep like a club, and I hit somebody with that. What do you think is going to happen? Right Now I've got a 15-pound club with a 2- to 3-pound dense um, fist at the end of it, unhinged, loose, and dead weight. Think about the difference between if you're in the military, and they tell you, pick your buddy up and carry him up a hill, and the guy's conscious. Right, and he's holding his body rigid. It's it's relatively easy to pick up somebody of the same size or slightly smaller than you and carry them. Now, think about carrying a drunk who's completely incapacitated and passed out, and is completely dead weight. And what it is, the systemic strike is nothing more. While it's highly refined in practice, it's not something you learn in five minutes. You can get very very powerful in five minutes just by understanding it. But to make it an art and to make it where it can be utilized takes a lot of training and time. But it is really nothing more than converting the arm into potential energy with dead weight behind it. Another way to look at this, you're standing about 10 feet away from me, or let's say you're standing close to me, and I take a baseball, and at a relatively low speed, I push that baseball into your stomach or your chest. And it just kind of hits you, and you just kind of give in, and it really doesn't do anything to you. So it's not hard enough like I shove it in there, right? I just push it with a little bit, just enough to knock you back. And you stand there and you go, that doesn't hurt very much. I back you up 10 feet. I use the exact same amount of force to throw the baseball, and the baseball, free and floating through the air, impacts you. The impact is much harder, right, even though it's the same speed, because the entire weight of the ball is now free and transferring its energy into your body. This is what these systema strikes are really all about. And there's a lot of martial arts that teach the same type of theory. Generally, though, they use it as a mystical thing. They keep it very, very high. You know, you have to be a sixth Don Black Belt or a second Don Black Belt or something like that before they'll refer you to show you it. And a lot of them are very extreme motions to make the same thing happen. So they'll be doing things with, like, the Iron Palm is, is an example of using the same type of mentality. 
but there are these long whipping motions. Sistema striking teaches you how to get the same effect with short strikes. Now, if you pull all the way back and use a full motion strike, can you get more power? Yes, but what's amazing is how much power you can get with a short strike. So that's Sistema. I don't want to go any deeper than that today because I want to stick with the, 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 psycholo- the psychological element here. The next thing, though, I want to talk about is dealing with an armed opponent and how it takes things to another level and how serious it really becomes when the person has a knife or a gun. At this point, you have to assume that your life is on the line and you have to take action, even if you uh, would prefer to de-escalate the situation. And I want to talk about something now that I think is highly misunderstood, and that is compliance. One of the biggest things that I picked up from Val is the philosophy that they were taught uh, when he was part of the Russian Olympic judo team and the philosophy that differed from the Western philosophy. We teach boxers, it doesn't even matter, a gymnast. We teach any athlete in our, in our world, our Western world, United States, Canada, the, the, Western Europe, we teach them to win, train to win. Train, and it sounds like a great idea. I mean, what would be wrong with teaching a boxer to train to win? Teach him to knock the opponent out. Well, what the Russian philosophy was, was they train to survive. If you survive long enough, eventually, and if you're patient long enough, eventually your opponent will present a weakness. And in that weakness, you find the opportunity for victory. Of course, when you take it to the combat scenario, now you find the opportunity to actually breathe and convert oxygen to CO2 again tomorrow, which is, of course, the first rule of survival, to wake up the next day. Well, when we look at a situation where we have an armed opponent and he wants something from you, compliance is a two-edged sword. Compliance can get you killed. Another real-world world story. Uh, same area that my father owned his gas station in where he was held up twice during the uh, 13 years that he ran that store. There was a, uh, a convenience store just down the road. And at the convenience store, a guy walked in with a gun. Seemed relatively calm based on uh, the, the, uh, the camera footage that was obtained. Uh, security camera footage, said to the girl, just give me the money in the cash register. She complied. She gave him the money in the cash register. The difference between what she did and what my father did was once she gave him the money in the cash register, she didn't run, she didn't move, she didn't get out of the way, she didn't try to defend herself. She assumed that since she complied, he would just leave. The man reached across the counter, took the money with one hand, pressed the pistol to the girl's face, right about the cheekbone under the eye with the other hand, and calmly pulled the trigger and killed her. Compliance is a two-edged sword. Compliance can get you as killed as resistance can. There's a balancing act, and in every situation it's different. You have to gauge the situation, and you have to think about yourself and the others around you. But compliance can get you killed. Compliance can also save your life. My father complied with both of the individuals who held him up. In both cases he survived. But he took compliance as an opportunity for escape. Compliance may also be an opportunity for resistance. Compliance from the standpoint of get in the car, I'm taking you somewhere, is almost always the wrong thing to do. Almost always. I can't tell you what to do. But what you have to view is you have to think about that psychology of confrontation I just gave you with Val. And that is, in a situation, your, your first goal is survival. And if you survive long enough, you find opportunity. So give me your wallet may indeed result in you giving the person your wallet. 
It could be used as a misdirection tactic by tossing it somewhere, by handing it to them, by bringing the confrontation closer, by using it as an opportunity for escape and to immediately put some type of protection between you and the individual that's armed. Maybe that gives you the opportunity uh, to go to your own armament. But full compliance is never the answer. Complete compliance is never the answer. Feigned compliance is often the answer. Real world story. This one I've told before, but I'll tell it again. Perfect example. Girl down in Florida back in the 80s. This lady, I wish you could find her name and find a, something on the Internet about it. She's my hero. I remember it being on television. Um, her boyfriend bought her a 25 auto pistol, which she kept with her at all times. I believe it was a laundromat was where this occurred, this kind of dark laundromat in an apartment complex, and a guy attempted to rape her. She feigned compliance. And while he was attempting to rape her, she managed to withdraw this pistol, put it to his forehead, and pull the trigger. And he ended up basically incapacitated in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And when she was asked if she had any regrets, she said, yeah, I do. I have one. I wish my boyfriend would have bought me a thirty-eight. He'd be dead. And you can't help but feel good about that if uh, you think about the scum that this guy was to do this to her. But that was another example where compliance was feigned and therefore an opportunity to survive for a bit longer and to take the opportunity for victory. And in this case, staying alive. Because let's say this woman had completely complied and allowed this guy to do what he was going to do to her. Who's to say that after he finished, instead of just running away, he would have strangled her to death? So compliance has to be used as part of a survival strategy, not as a final solution. There always has to be the continued option for response, either for fight or flight, based on whichever one gives you the best survival at the time. The other thing is to always stay calm, calm and centered. And it's the hardest thing in the world to do, to stay calm and centered. But it's really the only way to avoid that tunnel vision that I talked about, where you stay aware of the additional threats as opposed to the individual threat. I also want to talk a little bit about knives. The way Val put it is the knife is the oldest weapon known to man. And I think it's a little bit of an older, uh, oversimplification. <clears throat> but he also has, you know, the, the dual language barrier. So this is what I, I'm going to take some liberties and tell you what I think he meant. The knife is the oldest weapon known to man that is still with us and still used for lethality today. So, you know, maybe the club is an older weapon than the knife. Maybe the rock is an older weapon than the knife. It took some level of ingenuity to create a knife. And there may be other things that we could go out and find from our Stone Age ancestors that were used as weapons before a knife. But if we look at a, a weapon that is still consistently used, both by military, for defensive purposes, as a tool, and by thugs in the streets, the knife is the oldest consistently used weapon known to man for a reason. Easily concealed, highly lethal, quiet. I believe that knives in the hands of criminals may be more dangerous than guns in the hands of criminals. You might wonder how that is. Well, if I'm in a situation with someone who has a gun, and there's nobody really aware that situation is going on, but there's people in the area, if he uses that gun, the discharge alone makes other people aware, and it reduces my uh, opponent, we'll use that word loosely here, it reduces his chance to escape, to get away, to be able to take my life and escape and have no one know what goes on. But if he inserts a knife into my liver, very quickly, withdraws it, and walks away, even if I'm not dead now, I soon will be. I might not even know that I've been stabbed. Uh, Val, in his work as a nightclub security person, has been stabbed. He said he felt numbness and warmth, no pain, initially, 
when the stab occurred. And that there are people that he's seen that have been cut and stabbed and were not even aware of it. And not just people that were jacked up on drugs or anything, just people in normal state of mind, if they were not aware that they were being stabbed. Generally, once they see the wound, then they freak out, and they'll go down very quickly. So the knife is extremely dangerous, and we need to be aware of that. I also want to talk about the knife as a defensive tool and understand how how critically serious it is. I think there's a lot of people that carry knives and think, well, if I'm ever in a situation where I have to defend myself, I can rely on the knife. Absolutely last ditch, and I'll tell you why. The minute you pull that knife out, you have lethal force in your hand. And the opponent is completely within his legal rights in most states in this in this country to pull out a gun and shoot you. As is somebody, again, this is the, the two things that get left out in all of the training that I see. Number one, the additional threat, the guy's buddy, his gangbanger buddy, or just his buddy in general. And that's one, and at least some people somewhat cover that. I want you to put yourself in this scenario. You're in a situation with a much larger individual. You know that he's got you physically. You rely on the knife for defense. Some guy, standing a few feet away, notices it at the point that you've drawn the knife, doesn't notice the initial confrontation, has no idea what your intentions are. He turns and what does he see? He sees you with a knife drawn down on another person. He's a concealed carry permit holder. Is it reasonable to assume that he might shoot you before he asks any questions? And is it reasonable to assume that even the law would say, hey, it's a tragic thing, but what was the guy supposed to do? He thought life was imminently threatened. What if he yells at you and you turn towards him with the knife with no intention? You see, see how this all plays out. You guys that walk around with the knives and think that they are a good defensive weapon, you better really think long and hard about how they're ever used. Because they're one really great way to get killed. Because you're not a thug. The, white, the knife is the weapon of the stealth killer. It's the weapon of the person that simply walks up behind the person and again, with a little bit of an anatomical knowledge, puts it in their liver. Takes out a lung. Pierces the heart. Pierces the diaphragm so they can't breathe. It's horrible that it gets used that way, but that's how it gets used. Slices the throat. There's been more than one law enforcement officer that's gone into a building with a shotgun and had the, the, the barrel grabbed and been sliced in the throat. It's a very, very deadly close quarters weapon. It has to be respected. It has to be watched for. And you better think twice before you try to use it yourself. Because, again, the third party can always be the danger. It's just like disaster planning. Remember what I told you about disasters? The initial disaster is generally... An acute situation, the earthquake, the building falls, collapses on you, you're dead. Your problems are over because you're gone. But the real tragedies happen after the shaking stops and people are cut off from their systems of support. And the crowd level response is the real danger, the after effect. So in a situation where you're in a confrontation, it's often the people around you that represent the greatest threat. The well-meaning but unaware good Samaritan that sees you as the enemy, the law enforcement officer, that at that point of the escalation of the confrontation sees you as the enemy, or the thugs, fellow thugs. All of these things get left out in so many training scenarios. And with a knife, it goes to a new level. And the other thing is if you're using any weapon, you better not pull it, draw it, or wield it until you're ready to use it. And if you're at a point where you feel it needs to be used, it better be used without a second thought. And it's a disadvantage. We started talking about the morals of the criminal. It's a disadvantage that you will always have against the criminal. Because the criminal will plunge the knife or pull the trigger 
without a second thought. And you not only will have a second thought, you should have a second thought. You're required by law to have a second thought. But there are instances where that second thought, that morality can get you killed. That's why we start out with avoidance and we move on to de-escalation. And we remain calm and centered at all times. Without those, the entire system breaks down. And we're more likely to end up in these scenarios. And if you're in that scenario with the bloodthirsty, then you can end up dead because of your inert goodness. Sad to say, but it's reality. I also want to talk a little bit about guns. And something that Val has taught me that I always intrinsically knew, and it's always been part of the training that I've taken part of with tactical training, but I've never heard it quite put this specifically. When it comes to a gun, whether you're the person with the gun or you're the person that's trying to not be shot, there's what's called critical distance. And that critical distance is generally about 1.5 to 2 meters, which is about a yard and a half to two yards, for those that are not familiar with the meters in the metric system. I mean, when you get out to like a couple thousand meters, there starts to be a big difference, but uh, we're talking about six inches of difference from, from yards at that range. Um, and what he means by critical distance is if you're in a situation where you're closer than 1.5 meters to the person with the gun, with the gun pointed down on you, there's an opportunity for survival. There's a, a real opportunity for survival if you're aware of how to move and how to disarm an opponent with a gun. If you're outside of two meters, there's a real opportunity to get out of the line of fire, or as James Jaeger would tell us, to get off the X, in some way take concealment or cover and use it. Might even get shot, but less likely to take a lethal wound if you're two meters or more away. But in that 1.5 to 2 meter range, that is the most dangerous critical distance you can be in. With a person with the weapon, if they choose to discharge it, has a large opportunity to hit you. And the person, um, if you make a move toward them, they have a large opportunity to take the shot before you can. Now, there are the experts. There are the guys like Val. They're the Krav Magra experts. There are the knife experts. There are the people that you can put them 10 yards away, and they'll get to you. And they'll get to you more often than you'll get a shot off. Or you get a shot off that's critical. But they are the elite. They are not the reality. Most of those guys aren't out robbing people. They have better things to do with that level of training and time. And they're not the person you're likely to deal with. When you're dealing with the most likely thing, the guy that just wants your money, the guy that just wants your wallet, that is a distance you never want to be in. There's a big difference between a professional how a professional handles a gun, and how an amateur handles a gun. One of the things we did with the disarming videos that we did, we had Brian uh, from ITS Tactical, very well-trained individual, professional, uh, draw weapons on Val and have Val do disarms. And he was able to disarm him in most situations, inside the critical distance, right, which is what we were dealing with. We had uh, Mike from uh, Fight Time Fitness where we filmed the thing. We had him come in. And he had never handled a gun in his life. So he's, the, he's the, the, the thug that just finally gets up enough courage to buy a gun from a drug dealer and go out and try to rob somebody. And Val was able to disarm him. But it was very interesting to watch the difference in the way that the two people with weapons handled themselves. But also to realize, unless you are that elite athlete that can move at that speed, that you take the trained guy or you take the thug, or in this case, Mike wasn't a thug, just a guy that's unfamiliar with weapons, but can point and pull a trigger, put him out at two meters. 
and you've got a real problem and a real chance for lethality. What does that mean? That means if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're within one and a half to two meters, based on your individual situation, one of the very first things that you have to put as a priority is breaking that critical distance, whether it's closing in or whether it's extracting yourself out. And it's a very, very bad place to be. And Val's told me, despite his training, it's the last place he ever wants to be. So these are some things that I wanted you to think about today. This is a different show than I usually do. It's a little bit more graphic, a little bit more gruesome, a little bit more, oh, I don't know, violent. But I did promise you dealing with violent confrontations. These are just some things. I don't expect you to walk away from this podcast and go, I know how to look after myself now. But hopefully, maybe today, I challenged a few of your thoughts and a few of your concepts. I want you to think about how long it takes you to draw a pistol in a situation where you need to defend yourself. I know a lot of people out there have CHLs. I think you should carry everywhere that you possibly and legally can. I think it should be legally for you to illegal in this country for you to carry everywhere all the time without a permit. I think it's unconstitutional that we even have to get a permit. But that, since that's where we live, get the permit, carry the weapon. But I also want you to understand its limitations. How long does it take for you to get the weapon out? And how long does it take for somebody to slice your throat with a razor knife? And that's reality. And I'm sorry I can't leave it really uplifting today for you. But I wanted to put a dose of reality. And having just spent uh, the last week, and maybe I should give you a little bit for those who have not heard me talk about Val before, who this gentleman is that, that I've worked with. When Val was a very young man, as a child, he was part of the Russian Olympic Judo Squad. As he grew up, uh, he got to an age where they have, in the, mil- in the Soviet Union at the time, where they had compulsory military service, basically all male served. And he went into his compulsory military service, and due to his, his unarmed combat background, ended up working as a trainer for the Sveznok, which are the Russian Special Forces, uh, and the KGB. When the Soviet Union broke up, he said anybody that was associated with the KGB had basically two choices. You could join the Russian Mafia during the breakdown, because this is a survival situation. This is an economic breakdown of a superpower that went on. Or you could leave. Because basically no one else would have anything to do with you. So at that point, not being a bad guy, not being a thug, and not wanting to be part of the mafia, he went to London. He spent 12 years there. He spent that time as a trainer, uh, as a fighter, and he, he spent a lot of time developing more of the system level skills uh, under the toolage of Mikhail Rubuko, who is the undisputed master of the art, at least at t- today, at this point in the world. Uh, conducted seminars for law enforcement, etc., all over the world, and he is currently uh, in the uh, United Arab Emirates uh, training bodyguards for members of the royal family. So this guy is the real deal. And these situations, I think he's probably learned more uh, during that 12 years working high-end nightclub security in London in some pretty dangerous situations uh, than all the other things put together because it's the real-world confrontations that went on told me a story of having one of his fellow employees killed right in front of him, and they didn't even know it. A guy uh, shot him twice up under the arm with a .22. Uh, very quiet discharge, and even right out there in the street, but with music playing in the background and everything. Uh, the guy was gone, and they thought they just basically bounced him, and then his fellow employee collapsed in front of him and died, barely bleeding. Uh, and it ended up with it was two rounds of a .22 long rifle uh, that went up into his lungs and one to clip the top of his heart. So... This isn't just some guy that wants to come out and prove how tough he is. This is a guy that's really lived it. And and I would say 90% of what I've talked to you today about are things that I've gleaned from him over the last week. So I hope it was worth your time for me to share these things with you. And I hope it makes you think, and I hope it doesn't make you fear, but it empowers you. 
because the reality is the people that really know what they're doing out there that want to, uh, to, to cause harm are few and far between. Most of the people are highly uneducated and they're simply thugs, but they're still very, very dangerous. And if you understand the psychology of confrontation, you keep up your situational awareness, I think you'll find that you'll be able to either avoid or de-escalate most situations. Since coming out of the military, I've been in exactly one physical confrontation. One. And remember what I always teach. I've had to feed myself three times a day, every day, uh, since I got old enough to not be fed with a bottle as a baby anymore. These things are important, but having the ability to sustain your life and your living is much more important. So, don't be, don't be afraid of the threats that are out there. Be aware of them. Keep your situational awareness high. But remember, focus on the main things that we talk about, and that is living that better life every day, even if nothing goes wrong. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You can scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent